Morning all. Let's just pray before I start. While I was sitting there uh, thinking about my talk, uh, I was led to uh, Hebrews 4 verse 12. You don't need to turn to your Bibles, but we make this our prayer. It says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Lord Jesus, we do pray that your word will now uh, divide our soul and spirit. Lord, that you would uh, speak to us, you would speak to our spirits, Lord, that you would show us what we need to do to follow you um, wholeheartedly, to be holy in your sight. Lord, help us, we pray. We do thank you for Jesus and all that he's done for us. We've sung this morning about his blood. We thank you, Lord, for the blood of Jesus. And we pray now that your spirit would touch us afresh and guide us and direct us as we hear your word. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay, well, last month I looked at 1 John chapter 4, and we heard from John that God is love, that love originates from God, and we love God because he first loved us. I gave my January talk the the title, More Love, because love is one of the recurring themes in this letter of John and is covered quite extensively in chapter 3 as well as chapter 4. If I wanted to give a title to my talk today, which is on the fifth and final chapter of John's first letter, I would say even more love. So chapter 5 begins with a theme, theme of love once again, but it also goes on to speak about the witness of God in respect of Jesus, his son, and the assurances of God's word being fulfilled in the lives of those who believe in Jesus. The assurances dealt with in chapter 5 are the assurance of eternal life, the assurance of answered prayer, the assurance of victory over sin, and the assurance that we belong to God. So let's read chapter 5 now. So we're 1 John 5, verses 1 to 21. Just a a couple of things that will be of interest, well, hopefully to all of you, Um, Does anyone have an NIV um, Bible here? Anyone got NIVs? Okay, well that's good. And some some have got um, study Bibles, I hope as well, yes? You've got study Bibles with notes down below? Okay, good. Right, just before we begin then, the the NIV differs quite considerably around verses 7 and 8 with the New New King James Version, which is the one I'm going to read. And we'll say uh, more about that later. So, 1 John 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. 
and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us an understanding, that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God, and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Okay, so we ought to remember still, um, there are still some sort of um, references to Gnostics, I think, in this chapter. So we still ought to remember um, that John was speaking out against these um, false teachers as well, as we go through this. We look at the first five verses, we take them in sections actually, which are the ones that speak about um, love or more love, if you like, following on from um, chapter four. As I said earlier, we come across this uh, recurring theme of love, but n not only of love, also of obedience, faith and belief. And the word believe, with its variations, I think is worth looking at. It's used seven times in the first 13 verses of chapter 5. The Greek verb is pistuo, and comes from the noun pistis, which means faith. The verb itself means more than just to believe, it means to put one's faith in, to trust in, and has an implication that actions based on that trust will follow. It's more than belief in church doctrines and expresses reliance upon a personal trust that produces obedience. And it includes um, submission and positive confession of the Lordship of Jesus. So all these things um, around the meaning of belief. As an aside, the verb is used most frequently in the New Testament by the Apostle John. And when we compare its use in the Gospels, Matthew uses it ten times, Mark ten times, Luke nine, and John ninety-nine times. 
So it obviously had a lot of meaning to him. So looking at verses 1 to 5, John says in verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, he's referring to genuine believers who have put their faith in Jesus, continue and persevere in their faith and um, throughout their lives. So a, a genuine believer as opposed to the false teachers and the Gnostics. Verse 1 goes on to say that those believers are born of God. Now we came across this phrase, uh, you may remember, in chapter 3 and verse 9 of this letter. And both there and here, in chapter 5, John again uses the same word that Jesus used in John, the Gospel of John 3 verse 7, when he said, you must be born again. The tense of the Greek verb indicates that ongoing faith is the result of this new birth and therefore the evidence of the new birth. As born-again believers, we need to show the reality of this new birth by the way we conduct our lives. One of the signs of this new birth is in the second half of verse 1. As we love our Heavenly Father, so we must love his other children as well, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, when we look at verses 2 and 3, um, I thought I was going around in circles. I don't know about you, but it says in verse 2, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. These two verses bring in the recurring theme of obedience and show how John weaves these three themes of faith, love and obedience all together inextricably. Verse 3 also reminds us that God's commandments are not burdensome. A couple of quotes from Jesus uh, I don't know if you want to look these up, they're, they're very short, so probably not, but in um, Matthew 23 verse 4, if you want to look at that, Matthew 23 verse 4, this is a passage about the woes, remember, the woes of the scribes and the Pharisees. So he says, for they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Now, if you've turned to that one, turn to Matthew 11 verses 28 to 30, and this is what Jesus says about himself. Matthew 11, very familiar verses, 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In these two quotations, we see Jesus contrast the fruitless effort to save oneself by the works of the law with the sovereign grace of God and the need for spiritual rebirth. So we can say thank Jesus for his Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit, God's commandments are not a burden, but a privilege and an opportunity for us to show our love. Turning to verses 4 and 5, they again speak of overcoming the world. I said again because... We heard from 1 John 2, verses 13 and 14, on two occasions, John said to young men and fathers, Because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. And then again in verse, um, sorry, chapter 4 of this letter, verse 4, he's talking about the Antichrist. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, that's the Antichrist, because he who is in you, is greater than he who is in the world. And verse uh, 4 of chapter 5 tells us, when we are born of God, it is our faith that has overcome the world. 
And perhaps we um, think of the words of Jesus here from John's Gospel again. Um, Chapter 16, verse 33, if you want to look at it. John's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So the victory comes through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. We have the victory through our faith in Jesus. Verse 5 is probably aimed at the false teachers of John's day who acknowledge that that Jesus um, is God or Saviour, but they deny his true humanity. John asks, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm sure that implies fully God and fully man. Now we move on to um, God's witness and the assurance of eternal life in the next section, which is verses 6 to 13. This passage presents us with two problems which need to be looked at before we continue. Um, If we take them in the order that they appear, the first problem is the word water encountered in verses 6 and 8. Now this is why I wanted you to look at your Bible notes if you have a study Bible. Look at your notes if you've got any and see what it says about the water. I've looked at um, the New International Version, the New King James Version and the um, English Standard Version and they all say that this probably refers to Jesus' baptism. Now this may have some truth to it but um, it worried me. I was upset about this. I couldn't understand it so I consulted Tom and had a word with him. And then I still went back and had a look at Matthew Henry's commentary. And Tom and Matthew were in unison with one another. So um, I explored the angle that Tom gave me. And that was that the water refers to the washing by the word of God. And I don't know, some of you may have been brought up on that teaching. Others may um, think it refers to the baptism of Jesus. There is a meaning, obviously, for the baptism of Jesus, but I don't think it's here. And it's probably not the scope of this talk. But we're going to explore um, the scriptures about this problem. We will search the scriptures, um, or or you can listen to the ones I've searched anyway. And you can draw draw your own conclusions when you've heard them. But um, that's the first problem. The second problem is this supposedly extra verse or extra words, and for those of you that have the new, uh, sorry, the NIV version, we go through that verse again. So these um, words do not appear in the NIV, and I'm reading from verses 7 to 8. These do not appear. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Now these appear in the NIV. There are three witnesses that bear, sorry, there are three that bear witness Um, On earth is in the New King James. You probably don't have it if you've got an NIV. So there are three that bear witness, the spirit, the water and the blood. And these three agree as one. Now this verse, or these extra words, seem to be excluded on somewhat dubious grounds, I think. Uh, Most Bibles say that the verse cannot be found in early Greek manuscripts. It doesn't say that it can't be found in all Greek manuscripts. But it it says um, it can be found in later manuscripts and sometimes in addition to the margin but um, it doesn't sound um, that concrete to me. Uh, Secondly it was rejected on the basis of no other verse of scripture so directly describing a triune God 
And that can be refuted straight away if you look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28:19, where Jesus says, Go and make disciples, therefore, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So you have a triune God presented there, which no one seems to moan about, but he's not allowed to appear in verse 7 here. Anyway, you may wish to wrestle with those things at home. Enjoy yourselves. I've spent ages doing this. It's a struggle, but it's so worthwhile. What we don't need to worry about is that whichever solution you come to, neither way um, adversely affects our walk with the Lord Jesus. So just bear that in mind. It doesn't affect things too much. So we're going to look, um, returning to the passage, we're going to look at the witness of God and the Holy Spirit to the world regarding the truth of the deity and humanity of Jesus. Um, to constitute a witness or testimony of a particular matter, this is a bit not quite right in context, but the, the Jews went, went to Deuteronomy 19.15, where it says, if you want to turn to it, I'll give you a moment, Deuteronomy 19.15, this was about witnesses, and they brought this into their general way of living. So it says, one witness, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So that became one of their traditions. In verses 7 and 8, John gives us three witnesses in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, according to the New King James, and three witnesses on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And we're going to look at the witnesses on earth, because that's not contentious, so we can do that easily, can't we? <laughs> so looking at a little more detail, the witnesses on earth, we see the Holy Spirit testifying throughout the life of Jesus as to his identity, right from the start when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, and you might like to turn to Luke 1, verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And then um, you might like to turn to Luke 4, and we're going to look at 18, 19, and then skip to verse 21. So in Luke 4, Jesus has returned in the power of the Spirit from his temptation in the wilderness, and he goes to the synagogue at Nazareth and reads from the prophet Isaiah. And hopefully I've got the verse right. This should be verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then in verse 21, he said to those present, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he goes on, Jesus goes on to perform many healings and miracles in the power of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was bearing witness that Jesus is the Son of God. Now the water of the word, the witness of the water of the word, as I said, we're looking at interpreting this as being washing by the word of God, and it can best be illustrated by these following scriptures, I believe. First of all, the need to be cleansed, uh, to be in the presence of, a God, of God, began, of course, in the Old Testament, and God gave the Israelites laws for purification. And I've got just an excerpt from Numbers here. This is 19 verses 11 and 12, if you want to turn to it. 
Um, he who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water of purification, which was specifically made, I think it was uh, the ashes of um, an oak tree or something like that, mixed up with water somehow. But he shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, then he shall be clean. Now we read about the spiritual cleansing of the Israelites uh, being brought out of exile and back to their own land. In Ezekiel, we might like to turn to this, Ezekiel 36, and we're going to look at verses 25 to 27. So the Lord is speaking, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now there's an even simpler verse if you turn to Psalm 119. And this psalm, remember, is all about the word of God. The whole psalm is concerning God's statutes or his ordinances or whatever you like to call it. All about the word. Again, spiritual cleansing. We're looking at verse 9, just the one verse. How can a young man cleanse his way? And the answer comes in the second half. By taking heed according to your word. Okay, how can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word? In the New Testament and John's Gospel, we have three examples of cleansing with the word from Jesus. In John 15, 3, Jesus says to his disciples, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. This comes from the passage about Jesus saying, of course, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So it's talking about um, pruning or cleaning. And um, that pruning or cleaning is done by the word of God. The word I have spoken to you. It condemns sin. It inspires holiness. It promotes growth. Secondly, in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, 5, Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Um, here, Jesus was probably thinking of the figurative cleansing that we've just looked at in Numbers and Ezekiel. And thus, Jesus makes reference to the spiritual washing or purification of the soul accomplished by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. And the third example is uh, the account from the foot washing episode in John 13. Might like to flick to that part as well. I'm sure you're familiar with the passage, but note carefully verse 8. Peter said to Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. He did not say, if I do not wash your feet. He said, if I do not wash you. I haven't spelt this out, but you can look um, 
we're cleansed um, at the time of our salvation but need constant washing by his word as we walk the path of sanctification. You can read about that in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14. And one final example from the New Testament of water being associated with washing with the word, which I found sort of clinched it for me, can be found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So if you turn to chapter 5, Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Paul's talking about the church, remember, not about wives. So the washing of water by the word, that's the verse that really clinched it for me. But before we leave baptism altogether, um, it might be useful to just mention a few words about that. Jesus' baptism in particular, and then baptism generally, Jesus himself said in Matthew 3.15 about being baptised by John the Baptist, these words, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. And probably the main point here is that Jesus is identifying himself with sinners. And there are other meanings um, to the baptism of Jesus, of course, which, um, as I said earlier, probably outside the scope of this talk. But um, you may like to consider a believer's baptism um, today as a witness for Jesus. And there's a slight, I think there's a slight difference here between those that watch and those that are being baptised. So when a believer is baptised, the watching of the, of the event by non-believers may cause them, the non-believers, to be moved by the Holy Spirit. But as far as the believer is concerned, this is my belief, the sacrament that he's going, he or she's going through is an outward sign of something that's happened inside, an inner grace in other words. So the believer himself or herself comes to baptism because they've already been washed in the cleansing water of the word of God and they want to show that to the world. They're not actually being washed at that time. They've already um, come to a knowledge of the Lord through the washing in the water of the word. Okay, so let's move on to the blood. A few more verses here. Um, you might like to turn to Hebrews 9. The witness of the blood is referring to Jesus' death upon the cross. So verse 22, first of all, Hebrews 9:22 tells us, without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, of course. And um, the death of Christ was the perfect sacrifice. Have a look at verse 14 now, chapter 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now the sacrifices of the Old Testament were only symbolic. They did not remove one's guilty conscience or provide complete forgiveness of sins. I think Tom said many times they only covered over the sins for one year. Christ as our perfect sacrifice, who died once for all, resurrected and sitting at the right hand of God, 
enables us through his spirit to have a clean conscience and know that our sins are forgiven. So summarising the witness of the spirits, the water and blood, they all combine to show that the man Jesus, who was God, is the perfect Messiah and Saviour of the world. Okay, in verses 9 and 10, we move on to um, John adding the witness of God, saying in verse 10, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. Obviously, referring to the Holy Spirit, we are indwelt by the Spirit, aren't we? And um, Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 8, 15 and 16, you might like to look that up, Romans 8, sorry if your fingers are getting sore, Romans 8, 15 and 16, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So if we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can cry out, Abba, Father. In the second half of verse 10, going back to the letter, those who do not believe and make God a liar are probably the Gnostics who did not believe that Jesus was truly the Son of God, fully human and the Son of Man. So that was aimed at the Gnostics, I believe. Okay, so we move on now to the assurance of eternal life. Verses 11 to 13 give believers the assurance of eternal life. John effectively says in verse 12, have a look at that, that those in Christ have life now. We've been talking about this, haven't we? You know, we're not waiting for heaven. We want life now. And we have life now. Life without Jesus is meaningless and without purpose. And when I was doing this, I was reminded of uh, the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes. You don't need to turn to this. It's a very short quote. Ecclesiastes 12.8. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And that's what he meant. Life is nothing without God. It's meaningless. John goes on to say that if we continue to believe that Jesus is the son of God, again, this speaks of faith, love and obedience in our lives. Then we will have life not just now, but eternal Verses 14 and 15, we're looking at um, assurance in prayer. John says that we can be confident that God will answer our prayers if we pray according to his will. In other words, that we might pray according to what God wants and not what we want or desire. And I think we need to expand this um, a little bit. It's not necessarily the only condition to prayer not being answered, of course. There are probably loads, but a few more. Um, Earlier in the letter, in 1 John 3, 21 and 22, John says that we receive what we ask when we are obedient to God and do what is pleasing in his sight, which generally means to be free from sin. Um, if we look at John's gospel, uh, you might like to turn to this. John 14, verses 13 and 14. These are conditions for answered prayer, remember. John's Gospel 14, verses 13 and 14. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, asking in Jesus' name doesn't mean tacking that phrase on the end of a prayer. And I'm guilty. 
I don't, don't mind admitting it, but we don't really expect everything to be answered that we ask um, unless we're praying in God's will. John said in his letter it means we should be praying for God's purposes, not for selfish reasons. So the prayer, praying in Jesus' name, the prayer should be on the merits of Jesus, what he's done, and not on the merits of anything that we believe we may have done. And the prayer should be looking for God to receive the glory. Uh, we come now to a slightly difficult part. Um, this might, I might leave you slightly in the air here, actually, but nevertheless, you'll have work to do at home. Verses 16 and 17, John appears to be giving an example of prayer in God's will for a brother to be forgiven for a sin which does not lead to death. John then says that there is a sin leading to death. And we may be wondering what this sin might be. Is he referring to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Now that's covered by Mark in chapter 3, 29. You may like to just make a note of that. But in that case, it leads to spiritual death. So we're not talking about that here. Does he have in mind the sin of false teachers currently at work among the believers? Let's just have a look at physical death, an example of physical death. And um, you may, I hope you remember this uh, story. Perhaps we try to forget this one because it has quite a salutary lesson. I'm talking about Acts 5 verses 1 to 11. And it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We won't read it now, um, but you remember the story. They sold a field and they took the proceeds to the apostles and put it at their feet. But they kept back some of the money. And Peter challenged them uh, that they were lying to the Holy Spirit. They were both struck down dead. And great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So as I say, a very sanitary lesson there. Um, you may also in your own time wish to look at uh, 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 to 8. That's another passage to look at and study. But I'm going to leave it here um, just with um, a reference to James in 5.16, talking about praying for others. In some cases, not all cases, but in some cases, um, James says in 5.16 of his letter, it will be beneficial to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. And it does, I think, depends what your sins are, that you don't confess something uh, that you shouldn't. That might be between you and God alone. Okay, um, the assurance of victory over sin. Verse 18, John again repeats himself in the matter of victory over sin and Satan. And we looked at um, these two references before in 2.14 of the letter. Because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. And in 4.4 uh, 4 of the letter, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. In 5.18 of the letter, John says, whoever is born of God does not sin. Now, you may remember from one of my earlier talks on John's letter that the sense here is that the believer does not continuously, habitually sin, although obviously occasional lapses will occur because we are not free from sin. Verse 18 continues with the one born of God being kept by God and Satan cannot touch him unless God so allows, as he did in the example of Job. Satan may persecute, tempt and accuse the believer, but God protects his children. Um, turn to, again, John's Gospel, chapter 10. We're looking at verses 28 and 29, chapter 10, John's Gospel. And he's speaking about his sheep. Jesus says, 
and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So there we are. And um, the assurance that we belong to God, verses 19 and 20. Again, you may remember that um, from this letter in chapter 3, verse 10, John talked about two types of people in the world, basically saw things in black and white, the children of God and the children of Satan. And if we think about, again, John's Gospel, verse um, 17 of chapter 3, you remember the most famous verse of the Bible, which I'll tell you in a minute, but... um, Verse 17, God the Father sent his Son into the world that the world might be saved through him. Jesus, that is. So there we have the assurance that we belong to God. Um, Whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. The most famous verse in the Bible, of course. And verse 20, back to the letter, is like a summary of the whole letter and says that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Jesus has revealed the Father to us, I'm saying. Um, Think about um, the opening verses of John's letter, the letter that we're looking at. He said that Jesus is the word of life, that Jesus is eternal life. So when we know Jesus as God's Son, and live our lives entirely in him, we should know that we are also in the Father, and that Jesus is indeed the true God, the author of eternal life. To conclude, uh, verse 21 may seem a little out of place as idols or idol worship have not been mentioned specifically in the letter before now. But if you think about it, the false teachers had effectively invented an idol by not following Jesus, the true God. They had an idea of their own Jesus. And Tom's spoken about what Jesus have we got. You know, we got the true Jesus. And I think a question for ourselves, anything that we may consider outside of faith, love and obedience to Jesus can be, if we're not careful, the invention of our own idol or idols. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your love. We thank you, Lord, that we've seen in this letter of John's the great love that you have for us. We thank you that when we love, we know that we are born of you. We thank you for the assurance that we have of eternal life, of answered prayer. We thank you, Lord, that we can be in tune with what you want to do in this world and that we can see answered prayer when we um, fully understand what you desire. We thank you for the victory over sin and Satan. We thank you, Lord, for those hymns that we sang this morning. The blood of Christ cleansing us from sin. We thank you, Father, that we are your children. Abba, Father. Thank you, Lord. Amen.